Hello, welcome to The Jay Show. This is Dr. Jay Smith and Dr. Andy Bannister, who has flown down from Scotland just to be with us uh, to unpack some of his material. We've done that earlier in the early episodes on your doctoral material concerning the formulaic uh, construction of the Quran. And now we're moving into Dan Gibson's material. We are indeed. And we've been talking in the last episode uh, about Mecca. And we've looked and said that there were some real problems with Mecca. And we looked and we asked, uh, well, this is well known even back in the 1980s when Patricia Conan wrote a book about this problem called Meccan Trade and the Rise of Islam. But you noticed this as well, that there were difficulties with the geographical locations. That's right. To go that I think there's a number of issues we, we talked about in the last show. And I think Dan does a good job of highlighting in his book. Firstly, when you look at the Quran itself and you look at the geographical locations it mentions, rather than being in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula down where, where Mecca is today, they're all up in the north, which is an intrig intriguing mystery, especially as whoever's writing the Quran and telling the material that's in the Quran. If we should be having daily contact. Daily contact with these guys. So something Unless you had helicopters back then. Don't think he did. Or the internet or some such thing. Something odd is going on. And then secondly, I think we talked about as well, this is an intriguing one, is that when you read the descriptions of the Holy City there in the early Islamic literature, the Hadith and elsewhere, there's lots of descriptions about the Holy City that just don't match modern day Mecca. We're told the Holy City had a river uh, running through it. We're told it had vineyards and olive trees and agriculture and loam and, and all kinds of things going on. Dr. Anthony um, McCroy. McCroy, who's a good friend of both of us, he lives here in London, has just written a 95,000 word book on the Nabataeans. And you know what he's found? I don't know if you heard it yet, but he has found that, well, obviously, Nabataean, the whole script, uh, pre precursors and uh, gives us Arabic as we have today. Uh, much of the Arabic script comes from the Nabataean script. The name Allah is a Nabataean god. Right. Allah has a wife named Alat. Well, it's interesting, I mean, and again, uh, this is not controversial in scholarship, although many Muslims, Muslims may not be aware of this, but the number of words that are there in the Quran that are actually linked into things like Syriac Christianity, in fact, the very word Quran for a recitation yeah. uh, comes from uh, Syriac. Uh, it comes out of Syriac Christianity. But he found out that this name of Allah, right. the God, uh, Ilaha, interesting, has a wife named Alat, who's also known as Al-Uzza. Interesting. Now, have you heard that before? Uh, well, yes, indeed. There this is the, the uh, satanic the verses. verses. Surah 53, Ayah 19 and 20. Alat, Al-Manat, and Al-Uzza. And, the, and, and there they are in Nabataean civilization. But interesting, on, on the religious elements as well, of course, what do we, uh, what's, what do we read there in the Quran and the Hadith that's surrounding the kind of sacred precinct, the, 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 you know, the, the, the sacred part of the Holy City, with these great stone kind of markets, clearly delineating when you were into uh, that sacred area. No such archaeology ever been found in, uh, in Mecca. When you approach Petra, you can't miss these are. massive blocks. One of the first things you notice as a tourist, they're there all dotted around on the, on the hillside. Exactly as you described. So time after time after time, it seems to, it seems to fit. And we will, well, get, we'll get into this later. I still want to get back to this Alat. You keep yes, on wanting to get me off it. But stop and think. Alat and Al-Uzza. Yes. Wife, Alat is the feminine form of Allah. That's correct. In Surah 6, Ayah 101, it says very clearly that Allah has no consort. What are you going to do with Alat and Aluza? Well, a little bit of a problem there. A little bit of a problem because it looks like they didn't do their homework. Whoever, wrote, whoever borrowed this name and incorporated it into the Quran should have done a little bit of historical scratching because it's obviously that this Allah, the Allah of the Nabataeans, is not only polytheistic, has a consort. And if God is one, and that is their statement of faith, God is one. God is Wahid. 
David. Well, the other issue, of course, going on there with those with those deities and with the satanic verses, it's just again more evidence that the centre of the action is up there in in Petra. Because you know, why is it that Muhammad gets himself in trouble here? Why is it he he comes out with this idea that you can worship these two other deities alongside Allah? Because clearly he's trying to make peace with and draw the people around him into his new religion. He's trying to build bridges with them. Makes no sense down there in Mecca. It makes lots of sense up there in okay. Petra. He found also uh, Dr. Anthony found out also that there was. Um, there was a black stone in Petra. And wherever the black stone lay is where God lived. Right. This is fascinating. Now, Dan Gibson brings this up also. Well, so yes. He brings up about the black stone. But something happened, and Dan Gibson goes back to this. Let's, let's kind of look at the map again. Let's look at the map and see if we can get it up here. Now, what I want to do is I want to put this map up on the screen. If yep. you take a look at the map, Andy, you can see that where Damascus is right near the top. And there you can see where Jerusalem is uh, coming down uh, on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. Take a look where Mecca is, halfway down the peninsula. And you can see uh, that where the, they had to diverge to go down to Mecca, coming back up. If you look at this map, you will notice that Damascus is quite a ways farther north, again, from Jerusalem. That's the political capital. That is where the Umayyads That's correct. based their headquarters. If they're based so far north, what then was Petra? It was not a political capital. It was the sanctuary. It was the uh, the religious capital. The religious right? capital. That's where that is where the tombs and temples are. You've been there. You've seen those tombs. Beautiful. Absolutely. I've, I mean, clearly an extremely religious um, city. Now it's interesting. We'll get in. We'll get into the black. Let's push into the black stone a minute. I mean, a couple of things. Firstly, to say here, I mean, the black stone itself has always been an embarrassment. Right in, in Islam, because uh, you know they're you know embedded in the side of the Kaaba. They're in Mecca today. How can you be kissing something that is? It's an idolatry, and this well, is well. You've, you've heard the story, right, of Sir Umar the second, the second caliph. You know the beautiful little story. Uh, he goes there uh, in to Mecca. He does his uh, Hajj. Uh, he goes to the Kaaba and he goes. He bends down and he addresses the stone. He addresses the black stone before kissing it. He says, "If I had not seen the Apostle of Allah kiss you, I would not either." And then he proceeds to. To do it because to him it smelt of polytheism. Absolutely, today, everything it looks, gets looks rather problematic. It's very problematic, and Muslims don't know. I mean, you talk to them on the streets; they don't know how to deal with this. But historically, we see the reason, the importance of the black stone. Uh, Dr. McCroy noticed that the, it, wherever the black stone resided, that is where God's presence was. So here's the thing that interests me, though, Jay. To go if if uh, Islam did begin up there in Petra, and eventually the story gets relocated to Mecca, how did that Happen. I mean, did somebody program the GPS wrong? I mean, unless there's some mechanism where we can explain the move, I think there's a problem. All this, to me, I think was one of the final sort of bits of icing on the cake. I think uh, Dan Gibson in Quranic Geography maps out that process really, really well. And let me summarize quickly for you the story that he tells, because history is fascinating. So in 683 AD, so remember Muhammad dies in 632, right? So mm -hmm. about 50 years roughly later. Um, a gentleman called Abdallah ibn al-Zubair rebels against the Umayyads uh, and their power. Do you remember the Umayyads base there? Umayyads in and the Sufyani uh, family that started out up until six, 680 when Mal Mar Marwan II first comes into power. That's right. And of course, their central power there in Damascus. So he rebels. We read in the historical accounts that um, he declares himself caliph mm -hmm. in the holy city. It, tantalizingly, the accounts don't tell us where that is. They just refer to the holy city. And Al-Zubair, we read, destroys the Kaaba. And he takes the black stone uh, for safekeeping. So the following year, uh, Tabari, the Muslim historian, reports that Al-Zubair is beginning to claim that he's found the foundations of the true Kaaba built by Abraham all those years before. 
Now, Dan Gibson, this is where he, he suggests, he says, I think that uh, was at Mecca. Now, why would he have chosen Mecca? Think about it. You're rebelling against the Umayyads, their power base is Damascus. You want to be a long, long, long way away. Mecca at that point, yeah. just some tiny little outpost in the middle of nowhere. Great place to go and base yourself. Well, as we read on in the histories, it gets more and more interesting. The rebellion spreads, and in 691 AD, the city so of... now we have Abdul Malik. This is important. ...into this era. So Kufa in Iraq has now joined the rebellion. They've joined al-Zubair. Now we're going to come to the prayer direction. And Kufa is just, for those yeah. of you who don't know, it's just south of Baghdad today. That's right. This is where the Abbasids are going to come from. That's they're going to so you're getting a political, two different political parties who are up. vying for ascendancy. You have the Umayyads who are up in Damascus, the, what will then become the Abbasids who are over in Baghdad. Zubair now is in alliance with, with these, the, uh, these guys. These guys. And these guys in Iraq, what's fascinating, and we'll, we'll come to the prayer direction, the Qibla in a moment, they, are, they claim, the language they use, they say, we are people who turn to the same, the same Qibla as you. Well, in 600... Turn to, so there is a movement from one Qibla to another. So that's the implication. And we'll come to a bit more of this in a moment. But in 693 AD, to move on now a couple of years, the, uh, the Syrians have had enough. So they launch their armies, come out from Damascus, and we read that they attack the Holy City. Now, here's interesting. One of the reports we read is that one of the things they used to attack the Holy City was a trebuchet. Do you know what a trebuchet is? Well, let's put it up. Let's load a put picture. A we'll put it up right now. These are these are pretty big. They're bits of they're, they're basically siege weapons built out of wood. And if I hadn't fully appreciated how powerful these things are until uh, just a couple of weeks weekends ago, actually, my uh, my wife and my kids we went to visit this Scottish castle, and they had in the grounds a trebuchet because these things were used well into the medieval period. It is a flipping big bit of equipment, and the stones it throws are really quite big, and it destroys walls and fortifications. Now here's the fun thing. Uh, archaeology has been done at Petra, in fact lots of archaeology, and we've hauled loads of trebuchet stones out of the ground. They're, they're everywhere. They were clearly used at some point to attack the city. Have a, have a guess how many trebuchet stones we found at Mecca. Zero, I'm guessing. Zero. That's a very small trebuchet stone right there, actually. <laughs> uh, zero, which is, which is interesting. Um, so no trebuchet shown at, at Mecca. Mecca, but they all exist in... They, they're plenty at Petra. So it fits the historical record. If it's record. Now, moving on, this, this is great the way this story unfolds. Uh, now, move for another 10 years. We hit 705 AD. Mosques begin hanging signs on the wall to tell worshippers where to pray. See, until that point, you didn't need uh, to... Everybody knew where it was. Well, because the building's pointed the whole direction. Exactly. The, the whole building is orientated on the prayer direction. This is called something, the Qibla. Something has happened such that now the building's pointing this way, but guys, you've got to pray this way. And the, and the, sign, uh, the sign is hung. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, 713. 713 AD, what happens in the story begins to wind up. In 713 AD, uh, we mentioned earlier that the Petra now is in ruins. It was ruined by earthquakes. By an earthquake. And when and the earthquake, last earthquake destroys the, the sanctuary of God, God's that's right. presence is no longer that's there. That's right. And Gibson suggests that's probably the point at which that was considered by people to be divine judgment there on the, uh, on the holy city. And then you mentioned the, the Abbasids, the new dynasty. Well, in 749 AD, they begin, uh, they begin ruling. Uh, and they they rule take from, over. Where are they ruling from? They're ruling from Baghdad. From, from, yeah, they're ruling from Iraq. And what do they do? They follow the pattern set by their, uh, their ancestors in Kufa, and they formally adopt the new prayer direction. And at that point on, all the mosques are, that are then built after well, it then. Takes for, it takes till 822 well, yeah. before but all, all the mosques. Exactly. But there because there's some, and you can see, some are facing, yeah. we're, we're getting and jumping well, in the button. We are we, jumping the gun. Let's, let's now go back to the slides. If you open the slides, let's now go back to what Dan Gibson is. But let's, let's talk do. about prayer direction, shall we? 
Should we do talk about prayer directions? Let's do that. You've got this some is, great slides here, this is These are not my slides. These are Dan Gibson's slides. So we're going to borrow these from Dan Gibson's. I've got permission from him to do this. And we want you to look at these. He went and he looked at these mosques. Now, what do you want to do? He wanted to find out where the prayer directions is. The Qibla. We call yeah, this Qibla. Very important question. You can find Qiblas today. Uh, you can use apps on your phone. Uh, I remember when I was in the hotel there in Malaysia, that right in my hotel room, and had, a, had us uh, a... Uh, arrow showing exactly where the prayer direction, prayer direction is. Every mosque has a mihrab, these little niches in the wall to show you where the Qibla is. And that was being the same case back in these days. They always knew where the Qiblas were. Now let's start with this one here, the Mosque of the Two Qiblas there in Medina. Fascinating. It's been always been called the Mosque of the Two Qiblas, but no one knew why. It was built in 623, and there's really only one Qibla facing south. When you look at the, that's the one that everybody faces today. Until 1987, in 1987, they were refurbishing the mosque, and they found a second Qibla, a much earlier Qibla, lower down. That's the original Qibla. You can see the red, uh, you can see where the red arrow is. That's facing almost entirely the different, uh, separate direction. It's facing north from Medina, whereas the Mecca is facing south. Where is it facing? Well, Dan Gibson says it's facing directly at Petra. Here's the great mosque of Guangzhou. Guangzhou is what Canton would be today, built in 627. The Qibla is 12 degrees off. When you pull back and you look and see where it goes to, uh, most people have thought that that Qibla was going to Jerusalem. No, it's not. It's going straight through Petra. Here's the Fustat Mosque, built in 641. The description of the original floor plan showed a Qibla to the east and later towards the south. And this is what Fervadi and Creswell, when they went to look to this mosque back in 1905, they noticed that the original four plans were, not, were facing in the east and it should have been facing south. They make that. In, so over 100 years ago, we knew about this, but no one really came to any conclusions. They just assumed they was facing Jerusalem. Dan Gibson says, no, they're not facing Jerusalem. It's facing Petra. The Humayma Mosque, there in the Humayma Palace in Jordan. Look at the Qibla. This is 699. We're now coming into the end of the 7th century. We're a good 60 years after Muhammad's death. And now we're, as you can see where the modern mosque the is facing Mecca, but the old one is facing Petra. The great mosque of Baalbek in Lebanon. The Qibla is facing Petra. 701. Look at the dates. When you look and pull back from that, Baalbek in Lebanon, the Qibla runs right through Petra. There's the red line. It should be going to the black line, black line. But of course, this is during, this is during the, uh, the Umayyad area. Now here's an interesting one. Take a look at this one a little more carefully. This is the Amman Mosque in Jordan. 701 is the, the, uh, the lower uh, red line. That's the older mosque. Can you see it's on a different level? It was built in 701. It's facing Petra. Then a new mosque was built in 740. Can you see where the, the dark red uh, square is? That's the new mosque. It is facing Mecca. So something has happened between 701 and 740. You've already intimated we it. We have, that's right. 713 happened, the destruction of Petra. So that's why they had to remove it, and that's why, politically speaking, those who then aligned themselves with the Abbasids and then aligned themselves with Zubair, then are going to put it that way. But still, we're, we're at 701. Let's then go to 705, the great mosque of Sana in Yemen. 705, take a look where the mosque is facing. It's Petra. When we get to Israel, Kirbat al-Minya, 706, and now we're moving into the 8th century, built by Al-Wali, the son of Abdul Malik, on the shores of Galilee, inside a palace complex. There you can see the GPS coordinates. Everything that 
Dan Gibson has done. He puts the GPS coordinates there. This is not Google Maps. Muslims have tried to say that he's using Google Maps. He would dare use Google Maps. We're just using Google Maps to show you uh, in, in these slides. But he used the coordinates. You can look at the coordinates there on the screen. And you can see the Qibla is not towards Mecca, nor towards Jerusalem, but towards Petra. Now let's go back to the Wasset Mosque. This is that famous mosque that Creswell and Fervari found in 1905. This one is built in 706. Both Creswell and Fervari thought it was facing Jerusalem. <laughs> they thought it was towards Jerusalem. We now know that the Wasset Mosque, the Qibla, is facing towards Petra. Now we come to the real important one, and this is Jerusalem. We all know about Dome of the Rock. You can see it there on the picture. It's a very famous building. Um, we know that it is the center. Well, what is it known for, Andy? It's known really as the place where Muhammad went up to the seven heavens, known as the Mirage. That's why it was created, was it not? That's right. It's a very, very famous building, a very... Uh, 691. Know, 691, extremely uh, important, not least because it's got some very uh, interesting uh, variations in the Quran verses around the... Uh, they want the inside of that. that we're going to do another, that's a discussion for another time. We're going to do that in another episode. But that's fascinating. If you look at the buildings just to the left of it, that kind of light colored building, that is the Alexa Mosque. That was built in 709. The Dome of the Rock was built in 691. So therefore, the entire citadel is facing one similar direction. Guess where it's facing. And you can't change this today. You can't go and change because you're going to have to change the whole citadel. Both the Alexa Mosque built in 709, and the Dome of the Rock, built in 691, are facing Petra. They still are today, proving that this was the sanctuary that the, uh, the, that, um, the sanctuary, of course, that the, the Umayyads, in this case, Abdul Malik, because he's the one that built the Dome of the Rock, he wanted, that's facing Petra because that was his sanctuary. Damascus Mosque in 709, Qibla is facing Petra not Mecca. The Anjara Mosque in Lebanon, 714. Now this is a good one because it is still in pristine shape. It was abandoned, has never been rebuilt. And so Dan Gibson is saying, take a look at it. You, it's right there for everybody to see. In other words, they haven't destroyed the buildings. You can see the entire, the entire enclosure is, if you look at, when you look back, you can see the entire enclosure is facing Petra when you look at it from a, from a far off. When you go to the Mosque of Umar in Basra in Syria, now we're in 720. The Qibla was canonized in 724, according to Surah 2, I-145 to 149. So we're now almost 100 years later, Andy, almost 100 years later, and look at this mosque in Syria, 720, and it's facing Petra. Now we come to the Kirbat al-Mafjar mosque in the West Bank. Now we are 100 years later. The Qibla is facing neither towards Jerusalem nor Mecca, but Petra. Take a look. Now this is, this is what Dan gives you. Let's just look at and summarize what we've looked at. Notice how up to 725 A.D., all of the Kibras, as you bring them in, as you bring them in, and as you bring them in, look where they come. They all come to Petra, up for a hundred, the first hundred years. As far away as Guangzhou in China, mm. they're facing Petra. As far down as Sana, they're in southern Arabia, it's facing Petra. Egypt to the west, Damascus, Baghdad, Wasit, Kufa, Jerusalem, all of them are facing Petra. Then in 6728, here you find a mosque that's neither facing Petra nor Mecca. There seems to be some confusion going on here. And then we get the first mosque that Gan Gan Gibson has found that's finally facing Mecca. And it's as far away as Banbot in Pakistan. Look at the date. 731. How many years after the, 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 the canonization of the Qibla? Well, about 106. About 106, isn't it? Well, 107 now. So you're talking about over 100 years. It takes them a century 
for the first mosque to finally be faced the right direction, as we know uh, today. The Mushta Mosque in Amman in 743. Back again, it goes facing Petra, which Dan Gibson suggests, therefore, it's a Umayyad Mosque. So even as late as 743, you're having this vying. Which political party are you going to go? Are, are you going to ally yourself with the Umayyads, or are you going to ally yourself with now the later Abbasids? Those who ally themselves with Umayyads, their mosques are still facing Petra, according as late as 743. Once you get to northern Africa, then you have a real problem. Because when you look at the mosque in northern Africa, they're not facing Petra or Mecca. Here's a case of the fortress in Susa, Ribat Fortress Susa Mosque in Tunisia in 770. It's not facing Petra or Mecca. Dan Gibbon suggests that when you look at what they are facing, when you do a line from Petra to Mecca, it parallels that line. Suggesting that they're not taking allegiance to either one of these political entities. Cordoba in Spain, 784, you see it's facing also the same Qibla as that there in Tunisia in 770. When you get up to 817, now we're into the 9th century, get out in Tunisia, neither Petra nor Mecca. So what do we do? We then look at all this and you can see this is what he did in his book. 100% of the mosques are not towards Mecca. Now we're not saying that they're exactly Petra because they are off sometimes a few degrees. Then there's a confusion between uh, 630, 622, but 630s up until 822, 12% are facing Petra, 50% are pointing towards Mecca. So you can see more and more of them are coming towards Mecca, which means they're allying themselves with the Abbasids up until 749 when the Abbasids really take over. And then by 822, every one of the mm -hmm. mosques is facing the uh, Mecca. Now. You talked about the map. Just take a look at this map one more time. There is Petra in the, the green dot. That's where all the trade routes come to. So what we're showing here, Petra is the city of tombs and temples, which, and you can see when you look at a map, it has also everything that we want, everything we're looking for in a valley with a parallel valley, with a stream, with field trees, grass, clay, loam. We're now putting this all together. It has clay, loam, olive trees near the pillar of salt. Petra has everything that we're looking for in the Quran, all the geographical locations and what the traditions say fit Petra, but they don't fit Mecca. When we look at the references to Ad, they're 23 times, Thamud 24 times, Midian 7 times, they all fit Petra, they don't fit Mecca. What we're going to do then for the last five minutes, we're just going to bring this all to a close. Andy, help me here. Everything we've seen right now, what does this suggest to you concerning how Islam really began? Did it begin with a man named Muhammad living in Mecca? I think the simple answer is no. I mean, let's break that sentence there into two. A man named Muhammad living in Mecca. Put the Muhammad piece on one side because we haven't really addressed that it could be. It might not That'll be. That'll be for another episode. For another episode. But let's take it, did it begin in Mecca? I think if the evidence is increasingly looking like it didn't, and as I say, I'm 80, 85% convinced by, by Gibson, didn't want to be, but over time, it's the weight of evidence has built up. I think this does something quite profound, Jay. It tells us, I mean, on the one hand, it could simply be that you transplant all we know about Islam and simply flip it up to Petra, and it all began exactly the same way, just somewhere else. It could be. On the other hand, it tells me if something this big and this significant is there in the sources and has been, has been missed, largely because no one's ever bothered asking the question, it raises the question, how much can we actually know? about early Islam. How much can we actually, how reliable are our sources? 
And I think this is the problem we hit as scholars time and time again. When we try and do scholarship on early Christianity, we have phenomenal sources. We have archaeology, we have great texts, we have great manuscripts. We I mean, this was one of the big criticisms of the book of Acts uh, written by Luke, because it seemed they keep on saying he has the right, wrong people at the wrong place, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. We have now found that in every case Luke got it correct. We don't even have time to unpack what we now know about the book of Acts and the book of Luke. Because exactly. as, as a medical doctor, he was very interested in historical objectivity. He was interested in history. And the simple fact is that when the, you know, unlike the, say, the Islamic sources that are very, very sort of, uh, sort of tendentious, they refer to the Holy City, but don't tell you where. Um, you know, the, the things like the book of Acts and the Gospels, they give us names, they give us dates, they give us places, and we go check. We can go do the archaeology. That's a whole discipline of biblical archaeology. If, if, if listeners are interested, there's a magazine, I think, called Biblical Archaeology it's Review. It's called that very well. In fact, you from, can get it online. You can just from memory. And now, here's the thing. I'm a member. I guarantee you there is not. You cannot go to your local sort of your journal supplier and ask them, can you get me a, could you possibly get me Quranic Archaeological Review? There is no such journal because there simply isn't the work to be, to be done. And so for not me... Not yet. We're going to help them. For me, Jay, I think the exciting thing about this, or the fascinating thing about this, is it, it, it just really undercuts this whole question of the reliability of the sources. And if I was a Muslim faced with this, I think it would cause me to ask some very, very severe questions. And what I say to Muslim listeners, look, it's very simple. You can, bully, you can be a Muslim because you think it works for you and you can stop there. You can be a Muslim just because your family told you so and you can leave it there. But be honest in what you're doing. You have nothing else supporting it. You're simply supporting it because it makes you feel good or because you're actually afraid of, of it's your tradition. It's tradition. what your families have done. It's what you've been taught. But if you want to push a little bit further and go, I want to believe what is actually true, we need to go that little bit further. And see, this is also where, where I think a little bit of theology right, and becomes important. At the end of the day, we're not just talking about some abstract piece of information. We're talking about who God is, how God can be known, what we have to do to know God, have to, to, be, to have, our, have our sins and our brokenness dealt with. A lot rides on whether these things are true. When I stand before God on the Day of Judgment, I don't want to simply fall back on going, well, it's because my mum told me. I want to be to go, the reason I follow Jesus Christ is because I believe the evidence. And to go to my Muslim friends listening to this, however painful, and I appreciate that it's painful. I have many friends like you do who were Muslims who are now Christians. It is not always easy to face up to the fact that not that you've been lied to. In many cases, your parents have been very genuine. They believed it because they were told it. But to actually face up to the questions can be tough. But at the end of the day, on the day of judgment, I think you want to be facing the question of when I stand before God, what am I going to lean back on? Am I going to lean back on simply because someone told me a good idea? Or am I going to actually go, I've checked these things out and I've had the courage to pursue the truth. And Jesus Christ famously said, you know, those who seek will find. And to Muslims watching this, do seek. Do check these things out. Go watch the show again. Look at the evidence that we, we've offered here. Go read Dan's book. Do yourself uh, the favor of checking out if these things are true. And if they're not, have the courage to check out Jesus Christ, for whom the evidence is infinitely better. Absolutely. Andy, you know, we, we have a special tour here of the British Museum where we've looked at the Bible in the British Museum. And we've looked at Abraham and we've looked at Moses. We've looked at First uh, and Second King, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel. And we have found that artifact after artifact after artifact, stellas and obelisks and uh, murals, tablets, in every case, they fit the biblical record. Now, there's that famous saying by Dr. Nelson Gluck. He says, there has never been one piece of historical evidence, whether it's obelisk or stella or a tablet or mural that has been found yet that controverts a properly understood biblical statement. To me, that's amazing. We've already done this test. We've already gone through it. We've already put 
the Bible to scrutiny. As we've been saying quite a few times in our episodes, the Bible has been scrutinized, has been vilified, has been given redacted criticism, source criticism, historical, higher and lower criticism, literary criticism. It has gone through every one of these criticisms and it has been able to answer every one of them. Now we're just asking simple manuscript evidence. We're looking at artifacts. We're looking at places, dates, names, and events. 65 geographical locations. We find them in the wrong place. And in every case we have seen, and almost every time we ask the same questions of the Quran, it comes up wanting. Not of the Bible, but of the Quran. We're going to have to end it there. It's been great having Andy here. Andy, thanks so much for flying all the way down here to oh, be with us. Oh, it's been great to be with you guys. It's been good to talk about your formulaic material, but also this material on the historicity. This is damaging. We understand that. Listen, don't worry about this book. This book has lots of problems. We've said it many times, and we have pretty much keep it small for that reason. Come back to the bigger, the better book. Come back to Jesus Christ, the man behind the book the book of the man that we talk about, because he can be, yes, critiqued, and he stands above criticism. Not so Muhammad, and not so the Quran. Thanks for coming, Andy. God bless you as you fly back up there. Cheers. And make sure that you take this material with you. Don't ever stop preaching. It's been terrific. Thanks, Jay. It's been great to be with you.